You are listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture. This is issue number seven, Detective Work, guest edited by Megan Erdley. This is episode number four, Playing Detective. In the last two episodes, we've talked to architects and artists that have posed as architects to understand how different strategies of detection work to expand or contract space and time. We've talked about the way these strategies allow us to do things like see when the police plant a gun or anticipate the way money will move. We've discussed efforts to expand an event or prevent it. But we haven't really talked about what constitutes an event in the first place. What are its contours and its boundaries? So I spoke with Laura E. Hall, an artist, puzzle maker, and escape room designer, about the work she does to make ticketed events. Escape rooms are a relatively new form of entertainment. The component parts have been around for a long time, but today these tend to be a ticketed event that you go into a little bit blind. So you you buy a ticket to this theme and you show up to a space and then everything in this room that you're taken into is themed around some sort of mystery or action or goal. Everything in the room is a clue or a puzzle to be solved to get you to that goal. And then there's a timer running, and it's generally around 60 minutes that you have to solve whatever it is that has been put to you. I think Laura is a really sharp observer, especially when it comes to the popular appeal of detective work. Like so many of us, she loves the idea that every element in a room could become a clue, and she loves the promise that we can find new uses for almost anything. Laura underscores the importance of play. She emphasizes the collective creations of worlds that we want to be part of, even as she recognizes that these worlds can be co-opted by corporations that don't share the same goal. I think this tension becomes especially clear as we discuss a corporate commission that she did for a recent Comic-Con in New York City. So you're referring to the Amazon Echo Escape that ran at New York Comic Con. And that was a project I did with AKQA, which is here in Portland. We based this escape room on the Jack Ryan property and integrated in new Amazon products. It's the Echo suite of smart devices, right? So the the Alexa and the drop-in screen um, were both a part of it. Amazon commissioned Laura Hall to design an escape room that was set in the world of Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, a popular Amazon Prime TV show about a finance guy turned CIA who uncovers terrorist plots and corrupt politicians by following the money. So Amazon wanted the design of this escape room to use its Echo Suite, the so-called smart speakers that pair with a voice recognition and natural language processing program. This program can be used to voice-enable any connected device that has a microphone and speaker. Because it records user commands as well as background conversation wherever it's used, Amazon's Echo raises concerns about pervasive surveillance. Critics have referred to the Echo as law enforcement's dream because it can record inside our homes. Since the service is supposed to be voice-activated by a particular trigger word, there are a lot of questions about when it starts recording and when it stops, alongside questions about where the voice records are stored and what can be done with them. 
After news reports revealed that Amazon actually hires people to analyze some of its customers' voice recordings, the company has had to work to show that subscribers can opt out of many of its features. Of course, at the Comic-Con escape room, visitors had a chance to try out the whole program. In her Amazon commission, Laura Hall made detective work into a game that has particular architectural conceits. Players are invited into a cylindrical room that is supposed to reproduce the Echo device at a human scale. Players wander inside the device until they discover how their movements past certain sensors and their voice in front of certain monitors activate a sequence of events. In this and other projects, Hall invites us to play with the infrastructure of surveillance. Could you describe the games that you've been designing that integrate other media, like the escape room that you made for Amazon Echo? How did you integrate their technology and tie that into internet users around the world? There is a real challenge in integrating technology into something like that, and especially for a temporary event. You know, it's a lot easier when you can hardwire everything and you know that there's a reliable internet connection. Just the necessity of the technology dictate placement of the items in the room so that you don't accidentally speak to one and then it triggers something else that they're not supposed to be aware of yet. There was also a live streaming component to that as well. So it needed to be entertaining to watch as well for some of the sessions. There, there was a lot going on in that one. So it was building off of a world from a movie. Is that right? It's a new TV show that they've released. So was the expectation that people would be watching this TV show, they're familiar with the characters, and then they have the chance to go in and play in the world that they've been watching? Yeah. So Jack Ryan is a CIA analyst, and... His whole thing is it's very much based in reality, right? There's no sort of you click a pen and everything explodes like gadgetry. Hmm. Um, it's all very, it's spycraft type stuff, but based in reality. So it's actually a really good match for a physical space. The game was set sort of in a bunker, uh, like a safe house where you're helping, you know, the character Jack Ryan to do these things. So you actually began in sort of foyer, which structurally was the same dimensions as the Echo. I don't know if any of the players actually realize that, but, you know, you're communicating with this character and they are saying, okay, well, I'm going to let you into the safe house. Uh, and then they get pulled out by the enemy. So then you have to get in there and complete the task that this spy was in the process of doing because they've been forced to leave. There's still this like invisible presence of this character, even though they're not actually there or a part of it live at all. It did integrate live acting through the use of the technology. You said a few moments ago that the dimensions of the room were the exact same as the Amazon Echo. What do you mean? So just the first space, it was a giant column, essentially, with a fan at the top. They had to perform different actions using the voice commands, right? So turn on the lights or turn on the fan and things like that. And, it, you know, the fan would turn on and it would rain down paper onto them. But when they were doing all of the shape of it, they had designed that column to be in the same dimensions as the physical item, the echo. That kind of touch is elegant, I think. And it doesn't matter if nobody actually notices it consciously. So you've interacted with escape rooms on so many different levels. As a player, as a designer, as a consultant, and as someone who's analyzing them in popular media. You do this really great blog about how different TV shows have done escape rooms. Yes, 
So escape rooms in the last five years have really risen as a sort of entertainment product. And there's definitely a saturation point. But that also means that it has appeared in a lot of TV and some movies. So I'm just really interested in how, again, back to the storytelling part of it, like how are these used as devices to showcase character traits or to highlight something in the world of that show or whatever. Yeah, the series is Escape Rooms in Media, and um, it's very interesting. I mean, even My Little Pony, the new cartoon version, has had one, and they actually had one of the best-designed ones that I've seen. <laughs> like, sometimes it's the cold open to a show, so it's just a couple of minutes, and it doesn't really matter to any kind of plot if there's, like, a cohesion. Like, if it is an actual room with a logic to it, and this puzzle leads to this, or even if they're the same theme. But as a designer of them, I really appreciate when thought has gone into it at that level, even if it's not something that you see on the page. Um, so that's really what the essay series is is sort of looking for. You know, I don't expect all of them to actually have fully designed escape rooms and built all real puzzles, but whether they do or not is interesting to me. What made the My Little Pony escape room so successful or well-designed? So in that one, they go to it as a sort of surprise team building outing. And I thought it did a really good job of showcasing the actual reality of these rooms, which is that you do have to work together. You know, sometimes not being able to solve somebody can make you a little cranky, but that's why you're there with your friends. Um, but it, it also had things in there that were specific to the world. I don't watch the cartoon, but I researched it for this. And if they have a horn, they can often levitate things magically with their horn because they don't have hands. So they were levitating things in order to place them into stuff. And, you know, I, I, I thought that sort of level of attention to detail of like how they would actually be able to physically interact with the items in it was very thoughtfully done. <laughs> even though it's, you know, hooves. <laughs> <laughs> I think that drives home something for me, which is that it seems like the two elements that are so compelling are on the one hand, attention to detail, whether it's done through a pedagogical approach, showing you how you compare to the master and how many more steps it took you to do something, or if it's this careful placement so that things are intuitive to touch and encounter, as well as the encouragement to seek out adventure so that this immersive experience can enlarge and contract and scale. So that, like you were saying, any payphone can become part of this hyperlinked world that grows as more people play. Yeah, and that, I think, is what the fun is. The idea that a sort of mysterious window in a building could potentially have something fascinating happening behind it. Like, that is what ARGs, for example, make real. They sort of have this promise that you can like rely on other people and there's this global network of people who are, they're not working in their own self-interest, it's working collectively toward this goal. And I, I really find that appealing. In a way, all puzzle solving is just a practice of observation, no matter what the scale is. You observe what components you have, you're assessing them to see what information you can drive from it. You're trying to detect patterns in them or to check them against sort of known methods of encoding. And then you just continually repeat that process based on whatever next step you're facing. And escape rooms make that a sort of distributed process. So the assessment of what information you have, what has or has not been used, is a group activity at that point. 
And that's why, you know, you do need as a team to be good communicators, to be good observers, to have people with different skill sets, you know, somebody who's really good at diving deeply into it, somebody who's really good at taking a step back and having a look at the bigger picture to be successful in that. But that's also what makes it fun. My interest in puzzles and detective stories and such has been something that I have grown up with. You know, I, I was raised on Nancy Drew books and yeah, there's a really wonderful um, children's armchair detective book called The Eleventh Hour by Graham Bass, which just has all these puzzles woven into the illustrations. Um, and I've just always been really curious about that kind of stuff. As a kid, I did a lot of imagination play and I can point to other books and games that led me into this. There's a board game for children called Tales of the Crystals, which was sort of what we would refer to now as live action role play or LARP, but sort of facilitated through these cassette tapes that play audio cutscenes for you. And then when I was older, there was a genre of what turned out to actually be marketing called alternate reality games. Those were puzzle mystery treasure hunts that played out through the internet. Um, and this was in a time when bringing people together through the internet was still like a really novel idea. So the idea that you could summon all of these strangers together in person to collaboratively work on some sort of fictional puzzle thing was like very exciting to me. The term for that be called being rabbit holed. My rabbit hole was the ARG called I Love Bees. There was this website that people decoded. It's like a beekeeper's website, but in the source code, there were all of these times and dates and GPS coordinates, and somebody figured out that at each of those coordinates was a payphone, and that on the time and date, it would ring, and then there were people on the other end of it, and so by answering it as part of this game, you were unlocking all of these nodes, and you know, there were amazing stories about, you know, people are like braving hurricanes in order to like be the one there. They're, they're answering and they have a guitar and they're playing songs for the people making the game. And, you know, that just was super intriguing to me. So I got really drawn into that world. Hall explained that she became involved in organizing community events and updating the wiki pages of game players long before she began to think of herself as a puzzle person or even a designer. For a long time, I worked on community organizing within that or player wikis or, you know, footnoting and onboarding and that kind of stuff. I didn't really think of myself as a puzzle person for a long time. Then when I moved to Portland, Oregon, um, there's an event that started here. It's now worldwide called Puzzled Pint. Uh, that's a monthly event where you solve a puzzle that gives you the location to a local bar. And you turn up at the bar and you get some papers and you drink beer or whatever and you solve these puzzles and have fun. You know, it's a small group tabletop activity. And through that, I got into competitive puzzle solving where rather than just spending an evening doing these tabletop games, sometimes it's a full day, sometimes it's 48 hours and you're in a van with your team and you're driving around. In that way, I got actually, you know, to start thinking of myself as like a puzzle player and a puzzle designer. Then with my competitive team, we went up to Seattle to play one of the first escape rooms that opened in that region. I'm curious about the relationship between the games that you were playing as a child and then this more professionalized world of puzzles. I wonder where the act of detection fits. Is there always a detection element in a game? Or is this just one aspect that loops around the bigger interest in solving patterned problems? 
I think to fully understand the drive behind this for me personally, um, there's another project of mine that is, to me, mentally and emotionally, the flip side of the same coin of escape rooms. So escape rooms are fairly linear. I mean, you can design them so that they're not, and you can design them so that they feel for the player like they're not. But actually, it's like a very constrained experience. It's timed. The stresses that people are experiencing while they're in that escape room, just physically and cognitively, and you know, there's the time pressure going on, it's a dark room and they don't know what's in there, means that in order to do storytelling within that, you can't really use a lot of writing because people don't read it, they're assessing it for puzzle information, you know, it's just not a good way to convey story. But naturally, my own interest is in writing. And so, you know, there's a bit of a an art to storytelling in the physical space when you can't do that. And so the flip side of the coin for me is this project that exemplifies what I I sort of refer to as ephemera storytelling. I presented um, The Silence in Room 1258 at Now Play This in London in 2017. Uh, That's situated in an antique desk. And basically, it's just a series of letters and paper ephemera and some other personal items from a set of fictional people who are all in a 1930s Hollywood hotel um, during what is perhaps reported to be a paranormal incident. So, you know, you sit at this desk and you pull out an envelope and it's labeled with, you know, a person and a room number. And then you're just sort of reading through their letters and their stuff. And the whole thing is paper-based. It's up to you to read between the lines of what these people have written or to sort of surmise things through what they've collected. And then you get to choose also when you think you understand it or when you've had enough, when you are done. And, you know, of course, it's, it's a totally different environment that people are in. It's untimed. It's well-lit. It's in this sort of beautiful historical building and... Um, But at the same time, to me, that is the same thing as the work that I'm presenting in escape rooms. They're they're not all that different to me in terms of allowing the items to tell the story. But yeah, the deduction is is a huge part of that. And to refer to the childhood things, there were books um, in a series called The Jolly Postman, which is a it's a book for kids, and it has envelopes glued to the pages with tipped in letters. There's now a series of books like that for adults. Griffin and Sabine is probably the most famous. But I can trace a direct through line from those books to my design goal for The Silence in Room 1258, which was to evoke the feeling of reading other people's letters. You can also maybe attribute it to me spending a lot of time um, at estate sales when I was a kid. Growing up in the South, my dad used to take us around to a lot of battlefield graveyards and old historic homes. And I would, you know, I was like a little kid amongst all of these adults and I just like peek through people's things. And I guess I've really never quite grown out of that. So it seems like what really brings these two halves together is world building. You know, as a, as a writer and as a creator of things, like there is an element of control and an element of just in terms of world building, you know, you as, as the creator have to know everything about that world. And then you select which parts of those world you present to people and in what way. You know, I just feel like I need to know everything in order to create my own worlds. I need to understand everything about the real world, right? I love to learn. That's when I'm the most happy is when I feel like I know nothing about whatever subject it is and I can just really dig into it. You know, and I I think that in an escape room, there's a sort of small encapsulation of that, right? Like you are presented with this system, which is enclosed by this hour long time period. 
And you know that within that time, you'll figure out the rules of the system. You'll be presented with things that teach you those rules. And then by the end of it, you'll understand it fully and hopefully conquer it, right? I think all games are sort of based around that feeling. This really brought home for me the significance of the rabbit holing that you described earlier. The possibility of falling through into these different worlds and the technical challenges of that immersion. I think that that sense of transportation is something that I look for in work. And then, and this is again, as a creator, you know, when I'm engaging in these works, it's really hard to forget myself, to turn off my creator brain and to kind of, you know, lose my identity in the work. Like, you know, it's really looking for a kind of obliteration where you're so fully engrossed in something that you're not analyzing it. You're not thinking about the logistics of how this thing is moving to this or how this person is being shuffled through to appear in this other part of the set. Um, so when I have encountered those things, I respond very strongly to them. And that's how I felt about the ARG stuff. It's how I felt the first time that I visited Sleep No More. Um, that's now something that I'm hoping I'm giving as a gift to other people when they come into the worlds that I'm building. What is Sleep No More? Ah, so Sleep No More is a production of Macbeth that's staged in New York right now. Um, it's been run over the last 10, maybe 15 years. In It started in London, uh, then it had a run in Boston, and now it has a permanent home in this um, six-story former office building or office park in New York. It's been transformed into this sort of noir hotel. It's a sort of moment frozen in time. And the story is, it's promenade theater, so the whole thing plays out across the entire space, which has been made to look like a hotel. There's a hospital wing, a ballroom, there's suites of rooms, a graveyard, a hedge maze, and all sorts of things. Um, it's a space that rewards you for poking around. The show itself loops three times during the session that you're in it, so you can choose to follow a character as they move through the space and see what they're up to, and at any time you can sort of peel off and wander around or follow a different character or try to see another part of that same story. It's beautifully presented. It's very, like, fleshed out, and uh, it's just a beautiful work of art that I think exemplifies a lot of what we would call immersive entertainment, um, and they just do it very, very well. Also, this relationship between entertainment, storytelling, and narrative, and I was curious about the way you think about the relationship between these different elements. Do you have to have a narrative to tell a story? Is a story necessarily immersive? How do those things fit together when you're designing an escape room? That's a very good question. I don't necessarily think you have to have those things because ultimately in any kind of experiential work, it's really down to the person. They're the ones making the story for themselves and you're just sort of facilitating that in some ways. One of the best escape rooms that I've ever played had no story or narrative whatsoever, but it was an amazingly well-structured game in terms of the mechanics, in terms of the interactions. And so, you know, the fun that you're having with your friends is actually the experience that's being delivered. In the stuff that I'm making, and especially the thing that we're working on currently, as of this interview, um, it's a very, very personal story to me. And the world that I'm developing and trying to draw people into, the feelings that I'm trying to evoke in them is very personal. Uh, so to me, that is going to be highly narrative. But we still do design it for things like players having hero moments, right? When you find the key and the light is shining on you and you know exactly where that key goes, you feel amazing. 
There's also a term from LARP, which is uh, called froth. That's the collective myth-making that happens after the game has ended. And you're sitting there afterward saying, oh my gosh, it was so amazing when this thing did happened and you were over here, but here's what I was doing. And so you're sort of weaving this story together with your friends and that is what you actually remember. Um, so we designed specifically for frothing. It has gone into the choice of the location that we're in. You know, you want people to be able to head to a restaurant before and then after, you know, they can go to the bar next door and that kind of thing. I wonder if you can describe your favorite escape room. What made it so rewarding? Real nerdy stuff. In 2018, um, I met up with a group of friends of mine who are game designers and artists and academics. Uh, We all met up in Malaysia, where one of the people in the group has family that we could stay with. And in Malaysia, there are tons of escape room games. Um, They've just really proliferated there. And so our goal when we were there was to play through as many of these as possible. There's actually a podcast series based on that. uh, that It's called Every Game in This City. And playing in a group like that was the best possible experience. There were enough people that we could mix up the play groups. So we were always having a slightly different experience, but it was also a really high trust environment. So, you know, going in, you're a cohesive team. You're going to be able to communicate well. You're going to be able to rely on each other's strengths in this high stress situation. But we would, so we would visit these parlors and split up the rooms amongst us. And then we'd come out and talk about them. And then if somebody says, Hey, you really need to play this one, you know, you, you, we would swap around. And our friends went and played one that was themed after um, a classroom. It was a murder mystery. And they loved it so much that they wouldn't tell us anything about it, for one thing. And then they created a secondary set of rules for the game to be overlaid upon it via character profiles that they gave to each of us to play. And then we took those on ourselves and walked into it totally not knowing what we were going into and then played through it in that way. This sort of meta experience, they had designed this specific thing for us within this framework, but it wouldn't have been possible if that framework hadn't been designed in a way that allowed room for that creative spark to grow. And so that, I think, was really fun. They, they had given us rules like one person is trying to secretly sabotage the group or one person can't use their hands in this thing. And I think really the only thing that sparked that was first that each player is given a name tag. So they're playing one of these characters in the murder mystery, although you don't really know anything about these characters, but you encounter somebody's diary and letters in the game which again, normally I would say is a huge no-no because people don't really read stuff carefully. They're not going to necessarily get a ton of information out of it. But there was just something about the way that it was written and presented that was really compelling. But it wasn't so much story that we couldn't make up our own thing and have fun with it. Not, Not instead of it, but in addition to it. What was the murder mystery? It sounds kind of like the game Clue. It It was not too dissimilar. So the murder mystery was someone had been killed and it was down to one of three or four of this person's classmates. So you're reading her diary. And so you learn about the little teenage dramas that were happening amongst their social group. And, you know, at the end, you come to their lockers and they each have a name on them. And I think unlocking the final one was seeing the evidence of the mystery. I don't think it was something that you could get wrong. You could lose the game and not see that ending in theory. But I, you know, 
it wasn't something where it's like, I deduce that it's this. And then you open the envelope and you were totally off. I think by the end of it, we pretty much knew. Is that like a Sherlock Holmes idea about what a detective is? Potentially, yeah. Uh, Have you ever played the board game Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective? It is super fun. It's my favorite board game. And I think that the way that it plays out is very well suited to my game preference. The idea for that is you get a book and you get a telephone directory of London in the time and a map of London in the time. So you're reading through these sort of case files presented as ongoing mysteries sometimes. And I think occasionally they're presented as something from the archives. And Holmes is challenging you to figure out what the answer is. And so you choose a location or you choose a person to interview. You refer to a book and read that out loud. And then you're, you're asked to deduce what's happened. Um, sometimes that comes down to checking the map and seeing how long it would take to travel between different places. Sometimes there are very Holmesian leaps of logic about cigarette brands, things like that. And then at the end, you note how many steps it took you to get to the answer. And the book asks you, who did this? And did you notice this thing? And what, you know, it's challenging you these questions about the overall mystery, some of the branches of which you might have completely missed by just not going down that interview path. And then at the end, it's like, Holmes did this in two steps. And you're like, no. (laughs) (laughs) We play it not fully adhering to the rules because you are supposed to try to do it in as few steps as possible. But we really just interview until we feel contented because it's so interesting and it's fun to read them and to do the voices and to have atmospheric music and to actually do the deduction as if we were ourselves conducting this, not as a challenge from Holmes, who's already bested us before it's even started. So, There's a pedagogical directive from that game that you're supposed to improve or you're supposed to sharpen your skills. It reminds me that in the history of detective work, Forensic technology and public investment in detective stories come hand in hand. There's a public faith in forensics as a science dovetails with popular stories that are supposed to show you how you do it. You know, I think that just culturally and as humans, we want to know the human mind, right? It's the greatest mystery. We don't know ourselves all that well. And it's impossible to really know another person, I guess, depending on your philosophy. Mysteries and detective stories and such give you a framework to do that within, right? It's something concrete and you say, who done it? And that's at least why I find them really satisfying because sometimes you don't know who or why and that's part of the fun of the experience, referring again to the unknowability of other humans. But most of the time you get it pretty tidily wrapped up in fiction. One of the things that is so intriguing about this model of doing this as a game is that it's not actually wrapped up. Like you were saying earlier, you're going out afterwards and you're talking with friends. So it's much more open-ended and built through community rather than this kind of figure that stands back and is just such a genius and makes these kind of armchair leaps. As a creator, I do feel like it is puppeteering in some ways because the thing that I'm delivering to them is a designed experience, right? And there are a fair number of escape rooms that are really proud that nobody ever gets out of them successfully, right? They sort of boast that they have a 2% escape rate. And I really find that personally challenging because it's like, well, 98% of people have walked out of your game feeling like a loser, I know that competitive sport type events and things of that nature are fun because there is a necessity of that. But 
I just think that escape rooms have sort of moved beyond that. And that's not what I'm interested in offering. Um, My ideal actually would be if everybody escaped and then one, they feel like they've done it with just moments to spare. So they feel a real sense of accomplishment from that. And then, yeah, it's fine if they think that they're the only ones that have done it and they've bested everybody else. They'll never know one way or another if that's true. But that's, it's that feeling that I want to deliver to them. And my knowledge of it as a truth is potentially different from their understanding of it. And then the same goes for the experience that they're having when they're actually inside the thing. I designed so that every puzzle and every action that they're taking is propelling them forward in this story. So they feel as if they are moving themselves forward. Solving something naturally brings you to the next thing. Sometimes they need hints, and there's a definite art to hinting somebody through it, which is basically just redirecting their attention. Often people are pretty close to what it is, but we never explicitly tell them what to do because it's like trying to scratch somebody else's itch, like it just doesn't work. So we just try to direct their attention in the right way. Again, they feel like all of that has come purely from themselves, purely naturally, but it is a really tightly designed thing. And I refer to it in the design sphere as the Wizard of Oz. There's a man behind the curtain. That's us. And if you're doing it right, if you've designed it thoughtfully, there should be no friction whatsoever that ever draws them out of that fictional world, that ever draws their attention to the fact that they're in a game. And, you know, it should seem easy. It should appear to them to be easy to make because they should not see the effort that goes into it. It's actually, of course, very, very difficult to do it to that degree so that it is completely invisible. But they really should never see the hand that has moved it. You were saying that one of your goals is to design the game such that people will be seconds away from running out of time. How do you do that? We try to not put timers in the room with people. That's increasingly common now because often you're in multiple spaces. And so integrating a timer into a set design in a way that feels natural, it doesn't make sense across multiple spaces most of the time. And and so we just often will just not put one in. You can send them time alert through the sound system, for example, or through a hinting system. There's a 15 minute interval, for example. There would be ways to finesse it, like we know at which point throughout the hour that they're in the space, they should be at which points of the story. And so you can speed them up with more information in the hints to get them past stuff more quickly in order to usher them toward the right time. And then also, I would absolutely add time at the end if somebody was close to winning. You know, I'm not going to cut somebody off from having this amazing finale moment if they have three minutes left. That's not fun. But we also don't prime them to feel like they need to watch the time either, right? We don't have leaderboards, which sets up the expectation of racing against other people and we need to beat this thing. And sometimes people go seeking that specifically and that's fine. That's just not what we do. It sounds like hints are often audio or... Um, We do it through text uh, so so that people can refer to it again if they need to. Uh, In the first ever escape room that we built, it was a screen-based mechanism that a klaxon would blare when it was coming through. Um, And often people were so deeply engrossed in the gameplay that they wouldn't hear the klaxon. Hmm. So, you know, you're sort of mashing that button, trying to get them to look at the thing. (laughs) Um, Sometimes for safety reasons, you know, it just sort of depends on the region. You have an attendant in the room with the person or with the group. And in those cases, it is through voice. You, you have to be a little bit gentler, I think, in those. And mostly that's sort of leaning in and saying, you might want to check that desk again. 
And that would have to do with the scale of the event or the group that's playing? Uh, you mean whether there's a person in there or not? Mm-hmm. For me, I try to never put people into them. Sometimes technology necessitates it. For pop-up events, for example, I mean, you can always do things through texting, but a lot of the time it's just simpler to place a person in the room with someone. It's a, there's a safety issue to consider as well. This is amongst escape room owners. You know, of course, we all talk about safety standards. And I have heard a rumor that places are going to start requiring there be an attendant in spaces with players. I don't know if that's actually true. But of course, if it is, we will figure out a way to put somebody in there and make it make sense with the story. That would really change the dynamic. Then it's not this kind of sealed capsule. Yeah, I mean, you really want people to feel as if, just like in theater or a haunted house, you know, they've crossed a threshold and they're, they pass through this liminal space falling into another world. Over the course of this episode, Laura Hall has encouraged us to attend more carefully to the popular appeal of detective work. There is a radical openness to her invitation to find and solve puzzles in everyday life. In fact, Paul underscores the importance of play in the active collective creation of worlds that we want to be part of, as well as the challenges that surround corporate investments in this mode of engagement. You have been listening to Attention, the audio journal for architecture, issue seven, detective work. Guest edited by Megan Erdley. This was episode number four, Playing Detective. The interview with Laura Hall was conducted by Megan Erdley on June 18, 2019. The episode was researched, written, and narrated by Megan Erdley. It was edited by Kurt Gambetta and Joseph Bedford, and produced by Ethan Curtis, Joseph Bedford, and Ariana Karate. Thanks to the Graham Foundation for Advanced Studies in the Fine Arts for their generous support.